Okay, welcome to another episode of AlphaCast. I'm Mike Winter, and I am joined today with our resident Alpha Vedic doctor and founder, Dr. Bear Paul Lando. And today is going to be an exceptionally entertaining show, hopefully, because it will be a, essentially a journey back in history to the mid-1800s as we uncover um, is what has really been lost to history, which is a story of Antoine Bouchamp, or Bichamp and Louis Pasteur and their interesting relationship and how it's led to where we are today with notions of germ theory and really the foundation for Western medical science. And this is a topic that's extremely important because not only does it serve the foundation for Alpha Vedic and a lot of things that we're about and also the foundation for a lot of things uh, Dr. Lando has done in his clinics in terms of bioterrain medicine and understanding how the body works. But in this day and age where more and more we have these dogmatic beliefs being pushed upon humanity by the scientific elite and the medical system, based on this foundational principles, these paradigms, if you will, that were set by Louis Pasteur back in the mid 18, late 1800s, which we know as germ theory. And it's a really interesting tale. Um, I kind of got into it with this book, uh, Bouchamp, uh, Bouchamp or Pasteur, and it's actually two books in one. And it's an amazing read. To be honest, I'm only about two thirds through it. It's really thick reading. It's definitely um, not for the faint of heart and because it's just so rich in detail in terms of the scientific studies being done and the terminologies and a lot of the biological and terms and um, uh, a lot of stuff related to chemistry. But if you can get through it, it is so eye-opening and it was something that definitely is great because it gives you the assurity and the actual real foundation to understand and that a lot of things that are being pushed on us, um, like vaccines and specific biological injections and a lot of the more mechanistic, very much um, anti-nature uh, modalities in Western medicine that have this long precedent supposedly in science and intuitively if you start to doubt this because we're seeing the effects in the world now where we have massive issues with uh, immune deficiencies um, obesity we talk about this all the time on the show um, all sorts of neurological issues and chronic disease that is the plague of humanity when we are supposedly at the apex of our civilization historically. Intuitively, people, I think, are seeing this and questioning. And when you go to our, our friend Google, or not so much our friend, and start to research this, unfortunately, um, you are kind of sequestered in a gulag of commercialized or corporatized information. It's really hard to find truth these days. And it's ironic that we live in the information age where we have at our fingertips probably the most information in our known history that we can access, but more and more this information is relegated to just a specific few viewpoints. 
that are dominated by the mainstream controlling systems. So what do we have to do? We have to go find books like this that are based on true scientific research or actually all go to source. And actually these books were written in the, uh, in the 1920s and 30s. Um, one of them is the uh, Pasteur Plagiarist Imposter, The Germ Theory Exploded by R. Pearson. And I believe this was written in the 30s. And then the main book is uh, Bishop or Pasteur, A Lost Chapter in the History of Biology by Ethel D. Hume, who wrote this, I believe, in the 20s. And one thing that's fascinating about it is that, I mean, we are 100 years from the writing of this book. And when this book came out, it was actually very explosive. And it really caused a lot of people to question notions uh, of germ theory, vaccines, etc., and um, just due to the facts in it and the history of who Louis Pasteur was and um, a lot of the uh, pl straight up plagiarism and hubris that, that he had that forced him to come to conclusions that weren't scientific. And because of his political connections and um, his ability to market himself, was able to put forth a lot of these notions into a scientific dogma that were then later backed up by certain industrialists. And now we are where we're at today. And so we're gonna get into this today. Um, I'll admit, this is, a, this is a big topic. And for me, somebody who, you know, I'm not a, I don't have a doctorate in a specific um, biology or chemistry. Um, I've got a BA in film studies with a minor in history. Uh, but as we talk about in the show a lot, those titles really aren't important. What's important is the ability to have rational thinking and logic. And in fact, I probably have a little better chance of understanding this because I haven't been forced down those channels of traditional schooling. So by using logic and by um, using rational thinking, we can decipher a lot of this stuff and get into this. So we're gonna start to dive into it. Any uh, opening words for us, Dr. Lando, on this? No, that you're doing a great job. It's, um, it, it is daunting to the average person to have their most basic belief systems challenged. And what we're saying, uh, you know, when you find out the truth and you realize that germs are not the cause of disease, when you find out where microbes actually originate from and what they're meant to do, then uh, everything that we've been taught gets turned upside down. And it also <clears throat> turns everything upside down as far as what the uh, AMA and the pharmaceutical industry is doing to us. And you realize then that uh, all of their procedures are based on not just faulty science, but false science, and at the highest level, science that has been deliberately subterfuged. And so the other problem we have going on today is that um, the powers that shouldn't be have done a wonderful job in polarizing the population into opposing ideological camps. And so when you start talking about some of these concepts, which are going to really challenge uh, most of what the AMA does uh, relative to antibiotic use and 
and vaccines and, and that sort of thing, uh, people have been polarized into these camps where those beliefs then um, become anti-status quo and one camp is carrying the water, uh, doing the status quo because they've been taught that the other side is bad and vice versa. So we find most people uh, sticking up for ideologies or wanting to be on the red or the blue team when in reality, uh, and, and Mike, you, I know both of us are very apolitical. Uh, we know politics are just... Uh, part of the entrainment, you know, to distract us from getting to the truth. All we want to do is get to the truth of things because right now we're at a critical mass um, in the world. And that critical mass can go one of two ways. Many people are waking up to the truth that we're talking about. And that's a good thing. And we're just uh, a few people away from that critical mass happening where all of a sudden it spreads throughout the rest of the population and these things are just common knowledge. The other critical mass that we're also uh, approaching, and this is a neck and neck race to the finish line right now, is those people that um, are persuaded to uh, defend the status quo, no matter how illogical, no matter how much harm it's causing to our, uh, our biological selves, uh, to our environment, uh, in uh, carrying out wars across the planet. Um, people are um, in that camp also just a few people away from uh, you know, that going more viral and overcoming the people that just want the truth. So it's a very interesting time. It's a bit of a nail biter. And this subject is so important because we are controlled by three mechanisms. Uh, medicine, predominantly because medicine controls our beliefs about our very bodies. And if we can be persuaded to be afraid of our own bodies, and not understand that our bodies are indeed self-correcting, self-maintaining mechanisms that will work with us if we know how to work with them. In fact, we shouldn't say them and us because it's one and the same. It's, it's actually an outpicturing of, of uh, you know, our entire consciousness in a so-called physical form. So we really need to uh, understand this so that we gain control of our physical bodies and then that mechanism of control through medicine is taken away and we again achieve our autonomy. The other two mechanisms, of course, are through fi financial because financial uh, challenges are very survival and keeps us on the wheel of doing things we don't want to do just to survive. Uh, you know, uh, and then the third one, is a legal political system that uh, controls us, uh, you know, through popularizing false information, uh, codifying these uh, falsities in ways that are then um, enforced against us with violence. So medicine is a very, very key thing. And that's why a lot of people in my field, nature paths and folks that have walked a different path in medicine, uh, we necessarily become educated on all three mechanisms of control because we understand how it's actually one issue and all these things greatly affect our health. So, Mike, I'll, um, 
let you maybe start off with a little history and just share what, uh, what you're learning. I think it's great because uh, I'm sure a lot of the audience will be able to relate that, um, like yourself, you're a, a few steps ahead now after doing some reading. And uh, then maybe I can do some color commentary and just tell you with personal experience and relating real science. Uh, and this could be, I, I think you have us into two parts here for this topic, but it should be many, many more parts because it, it's, it's really the linchpin for everything relative to health and health care. And uh, there's so many facets uh, that we'll touch upon today. I'll just mention some things in passing, but there's no way we can do any of them justice in, in our time today. But let's just see if we can do an overview. I like, um, with these talks, I'd like to just keep it off the cuff. I deliberately don't make any notes or, or try to do any formal presentations or make lists of things, a list of factoids, because... Uh, it can go in so many directions, and I'd like to just keep it uh, sort of loose in a discussion format and try to keep it a little less dry. And uh, there's a lot of YouTubes and, and publications and things out there that will point you to that can fill in a lot of the factoids for you folks that just like that sort of thing. Um, but for right now, we'll keep it... Uh, just uh, off the cuff and, and I'll share my experience. So Mike, take it away. Yeah, I appreciate that. I mean, obviously you have 40 years about experience clinically and you have a vast um, personal experience in this stuff. So you can pull from that deep well and uh, don't need those notes. And that's just kind of how we like to roll anyways, because um that's just a more naturalistic approach, I think, to this stuff because it can get quite academic and that gets that can get pretty snoozy. So, yeah, we're going to keep it fun, hopefully, historically, with some interesting, fun stories here. Uh, I'll do my best. I must admit I'm a, I was a little overwhelmed and felt like there was a lot of stress and pressure on my shoulders here because this is such a huge topic. And so, yeah, I'm just going to do my best to kind of go through some of these historical um, notions here these uh the stories here and stuff from this book and uh we'll just have fun with it and the big takeaway here once again is to show that it's just really funny how history um is constantly rewritten and skewed towards those in control and like i said previously in this digital era it can get quite dangerous because it is now easier and easier with digital information to rewrite it it's literally 1984 style memory hole stuff here where and, and I'm going to start with reading a very mainstream um, account of who Louis Pasteur was. And really, this is where now every university, every major medical establishment uh, and kind of society and all these um, different scientific frameworks, this is the history that they go from now. And then what we're going to do is dive into this book that has takes the actual real accounts and the real documentation from the records that were put in by uh, both Pasteur and we'll give an introduction to who Antoine Bichamp was. And these guys were essentially, well, Pasteur saw him as a rival and they were contemporaries. And we'll see where really most of Pasteur's stuff, he just blatantly stole from Bichamp and then twisted to conform to his very narrow 
and actually very unintelligent views. He was not a real scientist. So uh, it's fascinating stuff. But this is what currently we are told in school, what we learn as kids about Louis Pasteur. Born in 1822 to humble beginnings in Dole, France, Louis Pasteur was a hardworking, serious child who at a young age demonstrated a greater interest in the arts than the sciences. There you go. A few would have predicted that he would grow up to be one of the most important scientific figures of the 19th century. Hmm, wonder why. During the course of his career, Pasteur made crucial discoveries in chemistry, biology, and medicine. He was the first to discover molecular, and forgive me if I butcher this word, chirality and spontaneous resolution while studying uh, Chris crystallography. Uh, he studied fermentation, demonstrating that it is a chemical process carried out by microscopic organisms, or did he? Uh, these findings gave him the information necessary to disprove the myth of spontaneous generation and to propose methods for preventing the growth of bacteria in food items, or did he? <laughs> this is crazy. His name quickly became a household word for food safety, e.g., Otherwise, you know, pasteurization. Or did he really develop that originally? Pasteur's studies on microorganisms inspired him to pursue the study of infectious diseases. While studying an epidemic in silkworms that was disrupting France's silk industry, he isolated the microorganisms causing the disease. Or once again, did he? Uh, this finding led him to propose the germ theory, which simplistically states that many diseases are caused by micro and let us reiterate that, which simplistically states that many diseases are caused by microorganisms too small to see without magnification. The germ theory would revolutionize the medical world and have a number of important practical consequences, including increased hygiene standards in the medical community and a newfound interest in disease-causing bacteria in the research community. Really simplifying a lot of this stuff here with this, which is what they're really good at, and glossing over a lot of the truth. By the early 1870s, Pasteur had already established himself as a renowned leader in research, which he rarely did. And in 1877, Pasteur began to fully immerse himself in the study of disease. At the time, Pasteur was studying chicken uh, cholera, a diarrheal disease that was destroying the breeding chicken population. Influenced by Edward Jenner, Pasteur reasoned that if a vaccine could be found for smallpox, vaccines could be found for all diseases. And this was one of his notions that there was a specific germ for every specific um, disease or reaction in the body, all external. By 1878, Pasteur has succeeded, or did he? <laughs> I love how they just make these declarations here as their truth, as if they're fact. In culturing the causative virulent bacteria of chicken cholera and began inoculating chickens. And this is, at least they admit this. However, many chickens died after the procedure, so Pasteur continued to study the disease. Not just many, by the way. Uh, in his studies, as a side note, millions of animals had died. And, and because of him, um, good old, um, our good old little friends, millions and millions have suffered. Uh, but looking for safer inoculation methods, he um, was able to, during this, um, he changed the field of virology forever. In 1879, Pasteur observed by chance, and this was by a complete accident, uh, and that he never really followed up on, which is funny, that old bacterial cultures lost their virulence. And we'll get into that. Uh, he had instructed an assistant to inject the chickens with the fresh culture of the viral bacteria before a holiday. The assistant, however, forgot and went on vacation. 
When he returned a month later, he performed the procedure using the old cultures. Unexpectedly, the chickens only showed mild signs of the disease and survived. When they were healthy again, Pasteur, intrigued by the results, injected them with fresh bacteria. The chickens did not become ill. Pasteur reasoned that the fact Pasteur reasoned the factor that made the bacteria less deadly was exposure um, to oxygen. The discovery of the chicken cholera vaccine by Louis Pasteur revolutionized work in infectious diseases and can be considered the birth of immunology. The notion of using a weakened form of the disease to provide immunity was not new, but Pasteur was the first to take the process to the laboratory, impacting all virologists who followed after him, which is not true. Uh, the microbe weakened in the lab had taught the chicken immune system to fight the infection without causing any serious harm to the chicken. This type of vaccine is called a live attenuated vaccine. Hypothesizing the technique could be extended to other diseases, Louis Pasteur continued to explore illness in the pursuit of new vaccines. In 1881, he helped develop a vaccine for anthrax, which was used successfully in sheep, goats, and cows, which we'll show in charts this is not true. Millions died. Then in 1885, while studying rabies, Pasteur tested his first human vaccine. Pasteur produced the vaccine by attenuating the virus in rabbits and subsequently harvesting it from the spinal cords. Rabies had presented a new obstacle for Pasteur in the development of a successful vaccine. Unlike chicken, cholera, and anthrax, both caused by bacterium, the microorganism causing disease could not be specifically identified because he didn't know what he was doing or any understanding the basics of any of this stuff meaning Pasteur would not be able to develop the vaccine in vitro. Pasteur did not know this at the time, but the reason he could not find the microorganism is because rabies is a viral disease. Uh, and we can talk about that there. Viruses are small infectious agents that replicate quickly and have a high mutation rate. These rapid mutations can be used to the benefit of researchers in the development of an attenuated vaccine. And what we'll get into is... Um, this complete misunderstanding from the basis of actually how the body works, which Bichamp, uh shows, um, is leading us down this total Frankenstein science with this stuff. Um, by serial passage of a virus through a different species, the virus becomes more adapted to that species and less adapted to its original host, deceasing virulence with respect to the original host, e.g. it is attenuated. By passing the virus to rabbits, Pasteur made the virus less dangerous to human hosts while still giving the body enough information to recognize the antigen and develop immunity to the wild version of the disease. After successfully protecting dogs from the disease, which he didn't, Pasteur agreed to treat his first human patient, a nine-year-old boy who had been so severely attacked by feral dogs, there was little doubt he would die if nothing was done. Pasteur injected the boy with a daily series of progressively more virulent Virulent doses of the vaccine from the rabies-infected rabbits. The boy never developed symptoms, and Pasteur became an international hero. Until Louis Pasteur developed the rabies vaccine, quote-unquote vaccines had referred only to the cowpox inoculation for smallpox. His procedure was originally called Pasteur's treatment, but Pasteur decided to honor the 18th-century virology pioneer Edward Jenner, who publicized the cure for smallpox, and give these artificially weakened diseases the generic name of vaccines. Thus, we largely have Pasteur to thank for today's definition of a vaccine as a suspension of live, usually attenuated or inactivated microorganisms, e.g. bacteria or viruses, or fractions thereof administered, administered to induce immunity and prevent infectious disease or its sequelae. 
Louis Pasteur's work advanced the nascent field of virology and served to spear vaccine research all over the globe. In subsequent decades, live attenuated vaccines were developed and introduced against a number of the world's most deadly diseases, including diphtheria, plague, tuberculosis, yellow fever, measles, mumps, rubella, varicella, and rotavirus. While the variety of vaccine types has increased over the years by and will a thousandfold, because it's a very good way to make money, many of the vaccines used today are still live attenuated viruses. In fact, among the f list of recommended vaccines for U.S. children, which are about, what, uh, 100 now? Um, actually, technically, I think 72. A uh, number of live attenuated vaccines, including those for measles, mumps, rubella, varicella, which is chickenpox, and some types of influenza vaccination has sub substantially reduced morbidity and mortality from infectious diseases in much of the developed world, um, which we have charts to show um, just through statistics. This isn't true. This result was ignited in a large part by the effort of Louis Pasteur. So that is the um, that's the narrative, right? That everybody learns that is set in stone. The science is settled. And that's what we are told. What's funny too, is that I, I've always looked, you know, I always considered that vaccines really didn't start until after Louis Pasteur, but we'll notice when they mentioned Jenner, like vaccines were being actually mandated upon the populace for smallpox in the mid 1800s in, in England. And so this goes back, we have a long historical, um, we have a lot of numbers and um, statistics that go way beyond like the, what a lot of um, quote unquote anti-vax people use in like the 1900s. We can actually go all the way back to the 1800s. So we have a lot of data, which we'll get into later. But um, I, I say this because this is the, this is now the history that is set in stone. And it's just fascinating because we're going to, well, you know, I'm going to do my best. This, this gets pretty complex, and I, I just kind of finished reading a lot of this, and it's going to be hard to remember a lot of this, but I, and I'm not as far in my notes as I'd like to get usually. So maybe in, uh, in, when we follow up on this in two weeks after I guess next week, I'll be able to follow up more on the history of this, but we'll do our best here um, because it, it is, a, there's, Pasteur was a very tricky fellow, and he was very, very good at plagiarizing and very good at marketing himself and and protecting himself through powerful foes and allies that were not as educated including um the emperor at the time and uh he was very good at politics so he was very tricky with his ability to um protect himself but this when we look back at the actual official writings um, that were put into the national science uh, in French and in France and Germany and England. It's all there, and you can actually still go to um, you can go look these up in a in national libraries and find all these original source materials. And they're all um, specifically documented in in these books. And um, once again, we I know we say this a lot, but we we're going to get an official book list and, uh, going on. Uh, the new site that's coming up for Alpha Vedic. So you can go and you can find all these documents yourself and do the research yourself. Um, but essentially that's what we're told about Louis Pasteur. Um, now at the time that Louis Pasteur was coming up and this is in the mid 1800s, um, science in terms of biology was very much in a place of 
discovery and in terms of where the core life comes from. So where they understood there were cells, they had obviously microscopes and could see cells, but they had some certain questions still of where life came from, but between where the, the basic chemical structures, right? Carbon, oxygen, et cetera, um, the elements, how those elements developed into cells. And essentially this was the big question of the time. And really there was, um, there was three paramount problems facing the scientific inquirers of the time. What is living matter? Um, this quote unquote protoplasm, so-called from the Greek words meaning first informed. Is it a mere chemical compound? Um, two, how does it come into being? Can it arise spontaneously? Uh, or must it always be derived from pre-existing life? And this was the two camps where basically you had the idea of spontaneous generation, which Pasteur was a adamant believer in for a long time, we'll find out. Or did it come from some sort of dias, um, some, some form of older life? Um, and uh, third, what causes matter to undergo the change known as fermentation? So essentially, why do things rot? Why do things ferment? What causes a change from life to death, right? It's essentially um, what they're asking. So this was the questions of the time that were dominating uh, a lot of um, both chemistry and biology. And so this is where a wonderful fellow by the name of Antoine Bichamp comes into play. And uh, Bichamp was somebody who was a, a real scientist. And let me give you a little bit um, of a little bit of a history of who Bichamp was or a little bit of who this guy was. Um, so Bichamp was born during the epoch that had just been, uh, just seen the finish of the Napoleonic Wars. On the 16th October, 1816 at Bassing in uh, Lorraine, where his father owned a flour mill. And so he was coming up in the early 1800s. And, um, Unlike Pasteur, who was, as this even this mainstream article says, that he was more known for his love of the arts and that few would have projected that he would become known as one of the greatest biological uh, scientific figures of the 19th century, which is funny because he was actually a chemist. He wasn't even a doctor or a biologist. Um, we have um, Bouchamp, who here's a couple of, here's just a few of his titles um, when um, as he passed away. He was a master of pharmacy, doctor of science, doctor of medicine, professor of medical chemistry and pharmacy at the faculty of medicine at Montpellier, fellow and professor of physics and of toxicology at the higher school of pharmacy at Strasbourg and professor of chemistry of the same town, corresponding member of the Imperial Academy of Medicine of France and of the Society of Pharmacy of Paris, member of the Agricultural Society of Hirol and of the Lenanian Society of the Department of Maine and et Loye, Gold medalist of the Industrial Society of Mulhouse, discovery of a cheap process of the manufacture of aniline and of many colors derived from the substance. He was a silver medalist of the Committee of Historic Works and of Learned uh, Societies. He was a professor of biological chemistry and dean of the Faculty of Medicine of uh, Lille. 
He had honorary titles, officer of public instruction, Chevalier of the Legion of Honor, and commander of the Rose of Brazil, just to name some titles. Um, he was a very accomplished scientist. Um, but even as a young, even as like a young child, he was, um, he showed immense genius. Uh, he actually was taken away. He was, so he was born uh, by a lower middle class uh, in a family that owned a flour mill. And he, uh, his uncle saw that he was very apt in the scientific studies at a very young age and took him uh, to basically to a city where he could have more opportunity. And uh, unfortunately, then his uncle passed away. And when he was, I think, 12 or 13. So friends came to his aid and placed him as an assistant to a chemist. So in his young teens, he was already assistant to a chemist who allowed him to attend classes at the university where his brilliance made all learning easy. And in 1833, without any difficulty, obtained a diploma in pharmacy. In his youthful proficiency, he presents a contrast to Pasteur, who in his school days was pronounced to be only an average pupil and later by an examiner to be mediocre in chemistry. We often find this, right? It's like the mediocre folks for some reason rise to the top because of their political connections. Anyways, Antoine was still under 20 when he returned to his native land and after visiting his parents started work at a chemist in Strasbourg which at that time, along with the rest of Alsace and Lorraine, was part of France. His extraordinary powers of work were soon made manifest. Much of his spare time was devoted to the study of his own language, in which he acquired the Polish of style that was to stand him in good stead in his future lectures and literary labors. All the while, he continued his university course at the Academy of Strasbourg until he became qualified as a chemist. On obtaining his degree, he set up independently at Benfield in Alsace, where he met and married Clementine uh, Mershin. Um, science claimed so much of his, uh, her husband's time that the training of their four children uh, was left to her. So essentially this goes down the, the, the line here, just explaining how he basically dove his entire life into science and his experiments. And so now we fast forward to um, the questions of, that we, I brought up, the three questions. Um, oh, here's another nice aside. Uh, this is a really good, uh, just a quick aside of how Pasteur differed from Bichamp. Um, to the physio physiognomist, a comparison of the looks of the rivals, Bichamp and Pasteur gives a key to their respective scientific attitudes. Alert determination is the chief characteristic of Pasteur's features, intellectual idealism of Bichamp's. Pasteur approached science from the commercial that is to say, the utilitarian standpoint, no less self-advantageous, although he professed to benefit the world. Bichamp had the artist's outlook. His thirst was for knowledge, independent of profit. He longed to penetrate the unexplored realms of nature's secrets. The outer world was forgotten. He was really all about the science, and he nerded out on the scientific um, process and could care less about in many ways, the fame or fortune or the even acknowledgement. And not until after he started seeing Pasteur bastardizing his uh, research and using it for his own and kind of uh, manipulating it for his own um, use did Bichamp finally start 
making it public that he was the one behind a lot of these notions, um, these scientific discoveries that we'll get into. So we fast forward to once again, those, the, the, the questions of the, of the day, which was trying to understand where true life came from, uh, where once again, what does living matter come from? How does it go from the elements on the periodic table to living, breathing life? And one way that we could discover this is by better understanding um, the notion of fermentation and what causes fermentation. Um, what obviously people knew about fermentation because people have been making beer for centuries, um, for thousands of years, really, fermentation was used for all sorts of wonderful things in the culinary world. But the actual processes, while probably understood well by monks and stuff, um, they knew the process, how to do it, how it actually worked, right? Which is what science is always trying to uncover, um, wasn't understood. And so you had the two really fields, the two camps, which was the idea of spontaneous generation or the idea that it came from some previous life. So um, essentially, um, Bichamp really was um, taken in by this. Um, and he wanted to uncover the, um, how this all works. So we have his famous beacon experiment where he um, takes um, all sorts of different vials. And his idea was, they were trying to understand, was the air, did the air come in to play here? Um, because the spontaneous, what really dominated was the spontaneous generation idea where somehow this stuff just spontaneously developed um, out of nowhere. And um, there was nothing outside that caused these issues. And so what Bichamp did is he did the beacon experiment where he took lots of different um, cane sugar dissolved in water with certain different types of salts. And then some had air and some didn't. And over a period of months, he took, um, basically he calculated um, the fermentation. And long story short, what he came to find is that um, there was lots of different results depending on what was what kind of salts or what kind of chemicals were in there, but more so that there was um, what the air was doing. And essentially what he found out was that there are germs in the air. And this was something, believe it or not, back then that was not understood. And um, he, um, he put forth the, the findings in uh, his famous paper that was put forth, and this was around the 18, 18, 1850s um, to the Academy of Science in France, which is where all of the, the official papers were sent. And essentially he was saying that it's not spontaneous generation, but from the air. Um, the necessity of the presence of these living organisms for the processes of fermentation was just shown clearly by this research. He explained the action of molds. They act after the manner of ferments, whence comes the ferment. In these solutions, there existed no albuminoid substance, which was what basically uh, the Pasteur camp said they had to have to do any fermentation. 
Um, instead, he said these, these um, liquids were made with pure cane sugar, which heated with fresh slaked lime does not give off ammonia. It thus appears evident that airborne germs found the sugared solution a favorable medium for their development. And it must be deduced that the ferment is produced by the generation of fungi. So it's not spontaneous generation from the air. Now, this was in 1857-58. Keep in mind, as we say, as we saw right here, um, that the general notion is that Louis Pasteur was the one that came up with the idea that fermentation is the chemical process carried out by microscopic organisms. Um, at this time, we already have Bichamp in this, and Louis Pasteur comes about in the mid-1860s uh, where he steals Bichamp's idea and puts it forth uh, in a very famous um, uh, speech. And we'll get into what his, what his uh, experiment was to show this. But the idea is that um, uh, Bouchamp beat him to the punch. And this is important because this sets a precedence of continual um, plagiarism by, by Pasteur. And, and the problem with this is that Pasteur doesn't do the science himself. And he plagiarizes, and then he doesn't have actual fundamental understanding of the science. And, and, uh, and so when he's called out by his contemporaries, um, he does a very good uh, job of backpedaling, and then he actually just goes and takes Bichamp's concepts and kind of twists, twists them a little bit to back himself up. And we can get really into the minutiae of this, and we don't need to, but um, it's, uh, it's really quite funny how this goes over and over again. In fact, and then as we move forward, there's many times where he steals. Um, so he, not only is it the fermentation, but then later... Once it's proven that there is this notion that it is outside germs that um, are that exist and can interact with um, living organisms, and this will later lead, lead to the greatest um, discovery by Bichamp, which is the micro microzymas, which we'll get into, which are the foundation for all bioterrain medicine and everything that we know and how the body works. Um, but later, um, there is a silkworm epidemic in France where the silkworm industry is getting ravaged by a disease and silkworms are dying. And Pasteur at this time, because he stole uh, Bouchamp's idea of, um, of how fermentation works through microorganisms um, causing it, uh, he is now, and he, he was very um, good at politicizing this and making good friends in, uh, like I said, with the emperor at the time and um, other people in the, the uh, sciences, he was able then to be the official person um, to figure out the silkworm issue where Bichamp just took it upon himself even before the official declaration to figure out the process. And he actually figures out what the problem is and what's causing it. This was also true with the... Um, before that, the fermentation of grapes, because grapes were um, obviously is a huge industry in France is winemaking. And um, he, uh, Bichamp figures out the idea of the Venus uh, fermentation, that it's actually, there's something external on the vine that causes it. And um, where Pasteur was saying that essentially 
where we come to find is Pasteur's notion of, of biology is that the body and anything, anything related to organisms inside is dead. And it's kind of weird because that, that notion is extended to this day that it's kind of a, uh, we are just ro robot, you know, very materialistic mechanical beings and that um, it's the outside stuff that affects us. And it's, we're not a very complex inner living uh, terrain or of uh, microorganisms inside us that is uh, uh, constantly changing and developing. And so uh, he over and over and over again shows his simplistic uh, notions of these concepts. And then uh, we'll then just pick and choose Bichamp's real findings uh, through his um, pure scientific um, experiments. And, uh, and then just every time he does this, he just shows his lack of understanding. So um, with the fermentation stuff, it takes about five years for Antoine, uh, excuse me, for, um, for Pasteur to catch up to Bichamp. And so he does this, uh, he's realizing, of course, in the inner circles that Bichamp's onto something and that it's not spontaneous generation. So Pasteur does this really silly experiment where he takes vials of a similar liquid substance and um, which are hermetically sealed and he goes, travels all around Europe to different areas of Europe and, and then opens up the vial to let air in. And his idea is he wants to prove the same thing, that it's um, outside germs in the air that are going to cause the fermentation. And so this is his really kind of, um, it's just marketing 101, where it's like a public uh, PR stunt that he does. And then he um, comes to the realization, too, that um, there are outside germs there. Um, so And then so that is, uh, it was just a funny way that shows that, um, you know, he, he's not really doing real science. He's just kind of, it's, it's all about uh, really uh, public PR stunts. Um, do you have any uh, thing to chime in on this, Bear, with um, the whole notion of fermentation and um, the idea um, that um, these outside um, germs cause that? I mean, it's, obviously today we all understand that. But, and what we'll find out later is with Bichamp's um, discovery of the microzemas, which are now named lots of different things, that it's actually much more complex than that. But it is funny that Bichamp was the one to, to really uncover the foundation of what becomes germ theory. So, Michael, the only uh, thing I'd add at this time is what this all leads to is the conflict that exists to this day which is, uh, do germs cause disease or is it the environment? Now, of course, uh, Bouchamp did demonstrate the existence of microbes, but it becomes more relevant when you understand um, where those uh, organisms come from, what their role is, and how the environment dictates uh, what they do, whereas Pasteur was of the camp that um, certain organisms exist isolated in nature and that they create certain conditions, which is absolutely false. And yep. uh, undoubtedly, if uh, Pasteur was alive today, he would be CEO of Bayer or something. 
um, he was just, he was a paid for stooge and, and, you know, we could go more into his background, his political connections and the fact that he was monetized by certain interests that had, um, an understanding that one theory would give them control and also wealth. And if on the other hand, Bouchamp's ideas were allowed to go public, then people would understand the importance of maintaining themselves, uh, understanding that they aren't victims of microbes, that the microbes actually come with inside of themselves. And it would do away with the whole industry that, uh, uh, controls us and uh, you know really farms us for a lot of money to this day. Yeah. So it's it's basically um, terrain versus germ. That's that's yeah. what we take away from all this. Yeah. So um, going back to his uh, to the way Pasteur worked because I mean this stuff is it sets historic precedents and it's good to kind of I know the stuff can get a little nitty gritty and we don't want to get too into this but it's really important to see how the historical proceedings actually happen versus that, that story that I started this off with where um, now everybody, if you go look up the history of Pasteur, um, you don't hear about this stuff that actually happened. So I'm talking about that, um, his uh, PR stunt to try to, you know, showing that what Bishop already proved with his beacon experiment, um, you know, four years before. Um, keeping everyone well notified of his proceedings in September 1860, he started on a tour armed with 73 vials, which he opened and then summarily sealed at different places and at varying altitudes. The last 20 he reserved for the Mer de Glace uh, above Chamonix, with the result that in only one of the 20 were the contents found to be altered. From this time, the autumn of 1860, Pasteur, the former spontaperist, which just means he believed in spontaneous generation, veered round to a completely opposite standpoint and ascribed almost all phenomena to the influence of atmospheric germs. So talk about polarity. I mean, he just goes from one extreme to the other. What's that sound like? Um, his immediate opponent, meanwhile, experimented on air, on mountains, on plains, on the sea. And as everybody knows, Pasteur never succeeded in convincing M. Pouchet. Of these... Um, Pasteurian experience, Bichamp writes, from his microscopic analysis, he comes to conclusions like Pouchet, without precision, there are organized corpuscles in the collected dust. Only he cannot say this is an egg, this is a spore, but he affirms that there are a sufficient number to explain all the cases of the generation of infusoria. Pasteur thus took up the position of explaining by germs of the air all that he explained before by spontaneous generation. He's just flip-flopping stuff. Um, so he was naturally entitled to hold any opinions that he chose, whether they were superficial or otherwise, and also to change his opinions. But we think it obvious that he was not entitled to claim for himself discoveries made by another worker, which is Bichamp. So, you know, he's a thief. Yet in a discussion on spontaneous generation, which took place at the Sorbonne during a meeting on the 26th, 22nd November 1861 of the Society Savant, Pasteur in the presence of Bichamp took to himself the credit of the proof of the appearance of living organisms in a medium devoid of albuminoid matter. The professor with the detaste for self-advertisement, which so often accompanies the highest intellect, 
listened in amazed silence until his own turn came when, instead of putting forward the legitimate seniority of his work, he merely gave an account of the experiments described in his memoir and the conclusions that have resulted from them. That was the Beacon experiment, you know, from 1857, so three or four years before this. On returning to a seat, which happened to be next to Pasteur's, he asked the latter, he asked Pasteur to be so kind as to admit his knowledge of the work that had just been under, that he had just told everybody about. The report of the meeting tells us of Pasteur's method of compliance. M. Bechamp quoted some experiment. This is, so this is Pasteur. He, uh, Bechamp quoted some experiment, just some experiment, wherein the transformation of cane sugar into grape sugar affected under the influence of the air is always accompanied by molds, thus proving that there's out, you know, germs. These experiments agree with the results obtained by M. Pasteur himself, who hastened to acknowledge that the fact put forward by M. Bechamp is one of the most rigid exactness. So essentially, this just shows Pasteur is just, he's such a great con man. He's so good at um, twisting things. Um, and then uh, it's just, uh, it just goes on and on. Um, so we move forward. So we're seeing that Pasteur, he's straight up stealing ideas from Bichamp, um, who is just an uh, intellectual superior in all ways. And um, this actually ends up driving Pasteur crazy in the next 10, 15 years, because over and over again, Bichamp finds the true um, nature to the issues that Pasteur is hired. So Pasteur is a good friend with um, the emperor, um, and uh, he goes and hangs out at court and uh, is given the tasks of um, the big process, the big problem they had down the line was the issue with um, uh, the silkworm epidemic that was consuming um, the, uh, you know, obviously the silk industry. And basically, um, Bichamp takes it upon himself to figure out what's going on. And he figures out that it's just kind of ironic. There actually ends up being two issues. But the first one, in fact, is an external um, uh, parasite that is attacking the grapes. And um, so he proves this. And I'm looking for what he called uh, what he called that parasite. But it's funny. Pasteur goes back to his to just to prove Bichamp wrong. Pasteur goes back and basically expresses spontaneous generation again and says, no, it's not caused by an external parasite, but it's caused by essentially spontaneous generation within um, the silkworm eggs within the larva, I believe is what he says. So, I mean, this is, or he's just flip-flopping again. So we see that he is not a real scientist. Um, so uh, the, basically, it's really frustrating for Bichamp because he comes up with a really simple uh, way to fix the problem why, by attacking the parasite. And no one will listen to him because by this time, Pasteur has become the authority. And um, it's, uh, it's really frustrating because Bichamp over and over again is like, please, please just listen to me. Just all you, need, all you guys need to do is this and this. And, um, and unfortunately, he's got the uh, emperor's backing. So people, uh, the, um, 
I'm looking for the chart, but the poor silk industry just goes depleted, depleted. They're losing like 50% of their, um, of their products because uh, they won't listen to Bichamp. So that's an interesting um, notion of another example where, I mean, it's just a microcosm of the greater macrocosm and a great um, historical lesson showing where we're going to be going now and how, where we are today, where it just keeps expanding upon faulty science. Um, so we move forward and Bichamp has now become really, be, after seeing um, what's going on with the silkworms and with fermentation, he's realizing that there's something else going on. And this relates back to wondering where life comes from between um, the original elements and the, um, where we form into cells. And he comes up with a notion of what he terms the microzymas, or microzymas. And these are essentially little bodies. And this is so, so important because this is where we get into the truth and reality of how life works. And um, this comes essentially from a Greek word um, where it's infinite, infinite, never dying little bodies. So what he discovers in, by using chalk, so he starts using really old chalk, you know, limestone essentially that is millions of years old um, as something where he, he just by accident sees that when he's doing his fermentation experiments, that where it's something that's completely sealed um, and has essentially no life in it. From what he could tell, he would use, an, he would use a way to just kill, kill the um, liquid um, that, uh, which by the way, backtracking, we talk about pasteurization. Bichamp realized because of the nature of the microzemas and that, um, there are little, little bodies of life. He realized you could, um, suspend, you know, milk going bad and et cetera by killing those, which, which pasture steals and creates pasteurization. Um, but in this experiment, he starts using um, a really natural chalk, if you will. So it's like an ancient mineral. And he finds that no matter what, even though there's no air and there's nothing outside coming in, um, the vials were st still fermenting. And so what he realizes is that this chalk actually has these little tiny microscopic living organisms in them that come alive. So they can be millions of years. They can be essentially dormant. And then they're, if they're put in the right temperature in the right climate, they can turn alive. And then where he goes from this is he discovers that these, what he calls microzymas, um, they can then create chemical change. Um, and so... Uh, he, he succeeded in isolating them and then provide, proved carbon, hydrogen, et cetera, to be their component parts and then, and then demonstrated their insolubility. If they were living beings, it followed that it must be possible to kill them. So this goes to pasteurization. Here again, he found the truth of his contention. For when he heated chalk together with a little water to, three, to 572 degrees Fahrenheit, he afterwards proved it to have become devoid of its former fermentive power 
and those little bodies were now quite devoid of the movement that before had characterized them. So he'd made them dormant. So this is before pasteurization. Among other points, he discovered that if during the process of fermentation by these minute organisms, all foreign invasions were guarded against by rigid precautions, the little bodies nevertheless increased and multiplied. This observation was to stand him in good stead in his subsequent researches. So that's kind of the beginning of the idea of the milieu or um, the idea that no matter what internally, doesn't matter what's happened externally, we have these little things in us and they are very complex and they can change and morph into different um, things, including bacteria. And in fact, all bacteria comes from these microzymas. Um, the little bodies he had discovered in the chalk appeared to be identical with the little bodies he observed in the cells of yeast and in the body cells of plants and animals. The little bodies that, for the most part, went by the name of molecular granulations, which other people had postulated about previously, but he was the first to actually prove it with chemistry. So he had to prove it with chemistry because they were so small that you couldn't see them in the microscopes of the time. Um, so being the true scientist versus Pasteur, um, he had cautious, cautiousness about this. So he, he was coming to this understanding with this chalk experiments that, man, wow, we are, we are realizing where life is coming from. But he didn't just, Pasteur would have just run out in the streets and yelled to the world that I figured out where I, you know, but Bichamp wanted to do every scientific approach to make sure he was right. So although his investigations of chalk were commenced at the time of the publication of his Beacon memoir, he continued to work at the subject for nearly 10 years before giving publicity to his new observations. Meanwhile, the proverb about the ill wind was exemplified in this case for diseases affecting vines, he saw grape vines, were becoming the scourge of France and led him to undertake some experiments that helped in widening the new views that he was gradually formulating. And this goes into the whole problem with um, the disease that were um, taking over the whole wine industry. And once again, Pasteur uh, was to lead the charge to fix the problem, which he, unfortunately, for the wine industry, <laughs> Bichamp wasn't the one put in task of that. Um, so in 1864, when Bichamp presented his memoir to the Academy about this, it marks an era in the history of biological research. For on the 4th of April of that year, he read before the Academy of Sciences explanation of the phenomena of fermentation. He showed uh, the latter to be due to the process of nutrition of living organisms, that absorption takes place followed by assimilation and excretion. And for the first time, he used the word zymase to designate a soluble ferment. So what he's saying is that, yes, we understand that there's stuff out there. Um, there are germs in the air, but it's actually the internal mechanism the of these little living organisms that is causing the process. Um, this is something that Pasteur never really actually understands uh, until his deathbed. Um, and in fact, there is a, there is like a legend there that on his deathbed Pasteur, I guess says it, um, it is the milieu or whatever. And essentially he's saying Bichamp was correct. And it was like, I've heard that. I don't know if it's true or not, but I've heard that many times. Yeah. So the takeaway from all this is uh, why does the medical profession hold Louis Pasteur as the father of microbiology? 
And the reason is because they had to bury Bouchamp because Bouchamp's later findings would prove that the environment is everything and uh, the whole, you know, much of the pharmaceutical industry wouldn't exist today if those ideas were mainstream. And uh, when you're finished, Mike, I can also tell you what these things look like under a microscope because I've spent literally thousands of hours uh, staring at these in people's blood and watching these, uh, what uh, Bouchamp called microzyma, uh, what Enderline later uh, called protids, what uh, Gaston Nasons, one of my personal uh, teachers uh, way back in the day, called somatids. And uh, that gets into all the good stuff. So I think it's really good to get this historical material as a, as a foundation just to understand that we've all been had. Exactly. And I can get a little, you know, I can get a little academic and intense. And, but I know there's a lot of people that follow us that love this stuff. So, I mean, and unfortunately, it takes a little bit of work personally to understand this, but it's so crucial because as we showed, you know, reading this just very mainstream summary of posture pretty much everything they say about him is a lie. And he was, and, you know, people say, well, prove that. Well, we're proving it right now. And it gets intense because we have to go into these, like, these scientific um, uh, papers. They're all written in French. And think, thankfully, Ethel D. Human did the work for us. And she actually went into the national libraries and found the English versions and pulled out all of the actual, um, the, the original primary sources that prove that somehow, I don't know how, I mean, how this happens, but how history gets rewritten over and over again. It's, it's wild, because it's all there. It's all there, and unless they burn all the books, I mean, now it's, the one good thing, I guess, about digital technology and why blockchain is so important too, is that this stuff is being uh, placed in the digital realm so it's being spread so that even if they tried to burn the libraries down and burn the original sources, luckily we have them copied. But, um, you know, luckily we've had people that do the work. And in effect, we're trying to do a lot of the work for you guys here. And I actually really enjoy this because while it is like I feel like I went back to school, um, I like it because it really helps me understand that I'm not just also um, – accepting the counter arguments, you know, cause I've known the counter arguments about this forever, but I haven't done the work myself. And I think we all need to kind of do the work ourselves in ways or follow along on a podcast like that, where we're showing you the work so that you can really understand this and not even just take our, what we say, um, to, um, you know, as fact, because, um, unfortunately as someone who studied history at school, um, it's all about going to primary sources. And as those primary sources get older and older and older, it gets more and more difficult to, to do that. And then history gets whitewashed and whitewashed and, and then manipulated for whoever's in control. So we're kind of going through the stuff. And just to show you how um, Pasture was, you know, he was the popular guy. Napoleon III, we were told, was deeply interested in science. At any rate, he and the Empress listened patiently to Pasteur's discourses on um, on all this on all his notions of uh, fermentation and 
um, what was currently going on with the silkworm epidemic. Um, the latter was not only brought into close contact with eminent diplomats and the shining lights of art and literature, but was singled out from among these celebrities for special imperial favors. His silkworm perplexities were confided to uh, Eugenie, uh, and she, she encouraged uh, him to fresh endeavors. Limelight is invariably thrown upon those smiled upon by imperial personages, and so it is easy to understand the increasing deference that began to be shown to Pasteur by most of his peers. So his peers even, you know, it's funny, a lot of his peers, the scientists, were, were calling him out, but they too were pressured politically and also monetarily to go with the flow, just like people today. Uh, scientists today we see in academics today are pressured continually by um, these corporate controlled or government controlled agencies. Um, nothing has really changed. As regard to the silkworm disease, instead of being watchful for the correct verdict, the world at large merely waited to hear what Pasteur had to say on the subject. Um, so basically, um, in a lot of what we know, it's funny about Pasteur was from his son-in-law. So a lot of what like what I was reading earlier about what is set in stone about Pasteur was actually um, was written the, the biography and stuff from his son-in-law. And, um, and it's even his son-in-law called him out on a lot of stuff. <laughs> um, but like I said, going to source, the French Academy of Science has all of this engraved in stone because they are all put forth they all had, you know, every time you had to put a report was put into their, um, into their library. So we do have all the original primary documents. Um, but going back to the notions of, of fixing the issues with um, what was going on with the silkworm epidemic, uh, Bichamp was very, very sure. And he said that the disease is parasitical and what they called pebrine uh, or pebrine. It attacks the worms at the start from the outside and the germs of the parasite come from the air. This disease, in a word, is not primarily constitutional. In other words, it is not spontaneous generation. And which is funny, you would think that um, Pasteur would love this and jump into this and because it would fit his later doctrine. But he doesn't. Um, he actually does the opposite. And um, he says that... Um, <laughs> Here we must look for the great discovery said to have been provided by Pasteur for the salvation of sericulture, or basically to, to save the industry. It was this, the healthy moth is the moth free from corpuscles. The healthy seed is that derived from moths without corpuscles. So he's saying it's from something inside. Such an obvious conclusion is laughable. Still, as it could not be condemned as actually being incorrect, it would have been just as well for Pasteur to have ventured no further. Because, yeah, these these corpuscles do arise from the, um, the outside agent. But he's, he says, I am very much inclined to believe that there is not an actual disease of silkworms. I cannot better make clear my opinion of silkworm disease than by comparing it to the effects of pulmonary phthiasis. Uh, my observations of, the year, of this year have fortified me in the opinion that these little organisms are neither animicals or cryptogemic plants. It appears to me that it is chiefly the cellular tissues of all the organs that is transformed into corpuscles or produces them. So once again, spontaneous generation still in the, we're in 1866 and he's talking about spontaneous generation where, um, you know, I thought in 1850s, you know, in 1857 Bichamp proved that doesn't exist. 
Um, not a single proof did he bring forward of a fact that would, if true, ha- would be marvelous, but not a single suggestion did he give of any experiment to determine what he asserted, that he asserted that absence of life in the corpuscle or the relation to the disease. And once again, this is something that Pasteur always relates to, that there's this absence of life internally, and then just stuff magically happens, and it's all affected from the outside. Um, so Bichamp, who is just like, at his complete just, he's like at this point, like this idiot, he's just, oh, I can't believe people are listening to him. Says, one would be tempted to believe, especially from the resemblance of the corpuscles to the spores of the Micarina, that a parasite had invaded the nurseries. That would be an error. Um, and so basically, uh, he's saying that um, this is a, he's just, he's losing his mind here. It's funny, you, if you follow this along, um, the silkworm industry is just falling apart and, uh, Pasteur is leading them down a treacherous path. And then finally, of course, they listen to, um, Bouchamp and they take, uh, the proper measures to, um, to get rid of the parasite. And then actually, um, uh, Bouchamp finds that there's a second issue and that it's actually internal and that there's, this comes down to his microzyma idea that there's something else happening internally that's a, a second um, and actually something completely separate from the parasite that was causing the issues. Um, and this just goes to show how, how great of a scientist he is because he doesn't get locked into a, into a single notion or dogma. He finds out there's actually a second problem. And um, Oh, and here's another notion of stealing ideas. So finally in 1868, um, so the second problem was called flattery, and um, and finally in 1868, on, G- on the 29th of June, um, the reports include a letter to Damas from Pasteur, um, dated June 28, 1868. Here it is extraordinary to find that he actually dared to claim that he had been the first to draw attention to the second silkworm disease and distinguish it from the first, which was called pebrine. So he's we have documented proof that he's claiming. Um, He's claiming, uh, you know, that he discovered things that Bichamp did. And just, it's just, just over and over and over again, he steals ideas. Fraud, 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 fraud. Um, so we continue on to the microzema um, stuff. And essentially, Bichamp just does ex- um, laboratory experiment uh, with um, laboratory experiment then also then relates it to uh, into the hospitals because he was an actual doctor. And he worked with a, um, a doctor friend who does a lot of this stuff with him, Professor Estor, who was a, a physician as well. And they start actually pragmatically, uh, practically relating their, um, what they're finding with the um, microzymas to patients who are sick. And they start um, actually seeing that this is alive and well, uh, these notions that it's not coming from the external, but it's uh, developed internally. And here's an interesting uh, antecedent, something from Florence Nightingale, the famous nurse um, who personally saw disease, right? She was there in the thick of it. And um, she had a great distaste for Pasteur, which is funny. Um, and, uh, Okay, so her distaste is widely known as indicated by the fact that the world-famous English nurse Florence Nightingale, she published an attack on his idea in 1860, over 17 years before Pasteur 
adopted the germ theory and claimed it as his own. So this is in 1860 where she is basically countering the notion of the external germ theory where specific germs cause specific disease. Diseases are not individuals arranged in classes like cats and dogs, but conditions growing out of one another. It is not living in a continual mistake to look upon diseases as we do now as separate entities which must exist like cats and dogs instead of looking upon them as conditions like a dirty and a clean condition and just as much under our control, or rather as the reactions of kindly nature against the conditions in which we have placed ourselves. I was brought up to believe that smallpox, for instance, was a thing of which there was once a first specimen in the world, which went on propagating itself in a perpetual chain of descent, just as there was a first dog or first pair of dogs, and that smallpox would not begin itself any more than a new dog would begin without there having been a parent dog. Since then, I have seen with my own eyes and smelled with my own nose smallpox growing up in first specimens, either in closed rooms or in overcrowded wards, where it could not by any possibility have been caught, but must have begun. I have seen diseases begin, grow up, and turn into one another. Now dogs do not turn into cats. I have seen, for instance, with a little overcrowding, continued fever grow up, and with a little more typhoid fever, and with a little more typhus, and all in the same ward or hut. Would it not be far better, truer, and more practical if we looked upon disease in this light? Um, for diseases, as all experience shows, are adjectives, not noun substantives. True nursing ignores infection, except to prevent it. Cleanliness and fresh air from open windows with unremitting attention to the patient are the only defense a true nurse either asks or needs. Wise and humane management of the patient is the best safeguard against infection. The greater part of nursing consists of preserving cleanliness. The specific disease doctrine is the grand refuge of weak, uncultured, unstable minds, such as now rule in the medical profession. There are no specific diseases. There are specific disease conditions. Now, that is a big triggering statement, wouldn't you say, Dr. Lando? Yes. <laughs> That's 18. Okay, so, <laughs> so here's the deal. Uh, if you go beyond Bichamp, the next guy in line is Gunther Anderlein. Now, that was my first exposure to uh, old school German microscopy and microbiology and the origins of terrain medicine. Terrain medicine uh, is basically saying the terrain is everything. If you have a healthy terrain, a healthy ecosystem, then uh, you won't have any problems and germs do not cause disease. So the mycorrhizae like um, Bouchamp discovered were then called somatids by Enderlein who is actually viewing these under a microscope. And I've uh, spent uh, decades looking under similar microscopes, looking at exactly what he saw. And these mycorrhizae actually, or the somat or the protids, actually are extruded from red blood cells. Now, when you look at these under a microscope, if a person has a faulty ecosystem, in other words, if their lifestyle's been poor, if they're toxic, if they're uh, under a lot of uh, psychological stress, then these uh, red blood cells that you see in, uh, in live blood cell analysis, they have like bullseyes in them, and uh, we call those parasitized, and that means that those red blood cells are going to start birthing some of these proteids, 
Now, in healthy blood, you'll see these proteids all the time, and they just look like little sparks of light. And those, by the way, when your body's discarded, when you're done with it, and uh, is digested in the soil, these proteids uh, live on generationally. They don't die. And so when the environment is faulty, then these proteids will go through cyclogenic changes that will uh, go through uh, bacterial phases, uh, fungus phases, and so forth. And those are nature's recyclers. In other words, they are the cure. So if you have a strep throat, it's because it was necessary for, uh, and there's three different uh, germ layers of these proteids. One is the penicillin uh, germ layer. And when the penicillin, specifically penicillin, penicillin notatum, becomes um, necessary in order to clean up certain tissues in the body, it develops from these proteids and migrates to the scene, in this case, the throat. And as nature's little recyclers, just like uh, nature does outside with fungus clearing up the, you know, cleaning up the forest floor or insects cleaning up carcasses after they die in the forest. So um, when the environment is pure then um, and lifestyle is proper, you have uh, good nutrition, good sanitation, then these germs do not have to go through these cyclic changes. You have an abundance of these proteids, uh, parent, again, under microscopy, which means you're a very healthy individual. But when you look into the blood, you see the parasitized blood cells. When you see these proteids that have actually developed into uh, higher valence forms, they're called, in other words, uh, you know, bacteria and such, then that means that the ecosystem is south. Bioterrain medicine is about restoring the ecosystem, identifying those factors that need to be uh, undertaken in order to return the ecology to a pristine state. So um, what you also see is these uh, uh, fungal and bacterial forms actually uh, oozing out of red blood cells. You, you just see it right in front of your eyes. So all of this happens within inside of us. So um, I, we could go on to some interesting points, but what we all should be thinking right now is, well, if in fact all these organisms, including the ones we're vaccinated against, come from inside of ourselves in response to cleaning up a faulty terrain, then why would we kill them with antibiotics? Why would we kill them with uh, vaccines that are just going to introduce other pathogenic forms and interrupt the whole process? It uh, doesn't make any sense. And in fact, it's the reason why we now have academic chronic degenerative diseases and, and neurological diseases and such. Yeah. So, um, yeah, it's, it's really important to, to take all these historic origins and trace them to the next level of science, which happened to be Enderlein. Now we're not just theorizing. And, and Bouchamp just didn't come up with this off the top of his head. He uh, contrived very ingenious experiments in order to demonstrate this, but he still couldn't see them. Now the next generation, Enderline, he could see them. And now after Enderline, uh, you have Royal Rife. Royal Rife is another whole story. He improved the, uh, uh, the optics of microscopy so you could see them even better. And he developed ways in order to return people to their normal state of health and also understand that these organisms uh, 
uh, we're a product, we're an inside job. The next person after that was Gaston Naissance, and, and he's one of the guys I studied personally with. And all these guys had one thing in common. They're all persecuted and bankrupted and jailed and everything else by the, you know, whatever uh, body of politics was operative at the time. So Gaston Naissance called them somatids. And uh, I was present at uh, um, Canadian conferences where we actually had people from the AMA sitting in and admitting as such, but also stating that, well, if we admit that what we're seeing there under the microscopes is true, then we have to abandon everything uh, that we do. So if anybody thinks that this is just hidden knowledge that the um, medical profession doesn't know about, not your average doctor, they're, you know, uh, mind washed just like the rest of us, but uh, even more so. But at the highest levels of these institutions, they know all of these things and they know that the um, things that they sell uh, in the name of uh, pharmaceuticals are actually making things worse. So when you yeah. look at these under the microscope, and then I'll hand it back to you, Mike, um, it goes through normal cyclic changes. And let me, uh, this is a book. Uh, I guess that's backwards to you guys. But oh, anyway, no, this is a uh, uh, Oh, is it? okay. This is a manual that um, uh, you know I got in the early '90s when I was taking conferences with uh, with Gaston Naissance, who came up with brilliant uh, remedies for managing the cancer train. And I don't say cancer is a disease because cancer, just like germs, is the cure. And if you understand it, you work with it, and you get better. Uh, so we call it the cancer terrain. That means the conditions in the environment that create the symptoms that are uh, requiring tumors to grow in order to uh, clean up the terrain. So if you look uh, at one page in here, um, now you probably won't be able to see that well, but what you have is a, a cyclogeny of how things start down here and what we, uh, you have a single protid under the microscope, it just acts like a point of uh, shimmering light. And then if the environment necessitates that going into a bacterial or a fungal stage in order to clean up the terrain somewhere, then we have a colloid. Then the colloid uh, comes together with another colloid. That's just like a little, uh, a, a larger circle than the protid appears under the microscope. Then they create a little membrane between them. And then the membrane, now you have uh, two little dots with a membrane in between that stretches out. Now it starts to look like a little worm. We call that a chondrit. And we could go all the way through the cycle and the many stages, which eventuate into bacterial fungus and the sorts of things that uh, contemporary germ theory of disease says, oh, those are the causes of disease uh, without understanding that they are actually nature's recyclers and part of the cure. And we don't have to suffer the consequences of microorganisms overstaying their welcome if we know how to work with them. And I'll say one last thing. When that first or the third stage where the two colloids come together, create a membrane, uh, we call that a beaded colloid. Now, that is, in fact, what they try to call viruses these days. However, because they don't look at these things in their alive state and they uh, have uh, different kind of samples and then uh, basically the, the blood is no longer alive, then they can't see these things 
in a blood slide that has been stained. And, and um, so then, you know, they still go ahead with their narrative of viruses and things. But the beaded colloids are, in fact, uh, what gave birth to their idea of these organisms called viruses, which then are blamed for uh, all sorts of other diseases these days. And that's a scam, and they know it. And uh, they also know that uh, germs do not cause disease. Now, there are bioengineered uh, microbes these days that are a whole different matter and a whole different conversation. But um, so if we could just summarize everything you've been going over, Michael, it's the terrain uh, uh, ter uh, theory, which is um, the terrain is everything and the germ is nothing. Um, it, that wasn't Bouchamp that said that. That was, uh, uh, name's escaping me right now. I'll think of it in a second. Uh, and not germs that cause disease. Germs are the cure. Diseases do not exist. Diseases are nature's uh, uh, mechanisms in order to reinstate equilibrium in the ecology. Exactly. And you mentioned the whole virus thing. And I, I know people watching this or listening to this later be like, well, we have the greatest technologies now in laboratories with, you know, billions to finance research. How is it that this is not uh, just so commonplace if this is true? And here's an interesting thing out of this book relating to Bouchamp, which kind of gives some, uh, I guess, enlightenment on that idea. Bichamp made discoveries in the same way that a Beethoven composes, a Raphael paints, and a Dickens writes. That is to say, because he could not help himself. He could not do otherwise. In pathetic contrast, we find men today taken away from practical work and set down in laboratories to make discoveries. In many cases, they have mediocre minds which could never originate an idea of any sort on their own. All they can follow are routine theories and their so-called quote-unquote discoveries are of the type that pile up error upon error. Provide a man with his practical work, and if he has to discover his rare insight, as night yields today, so will practice lead to enlightenment. What is urgently needed is freedom from dogma and the encouragement of original opinions. Mind and mass move at a snail's pace, and the greatest impediment, no doubt, to Bichamp's microzymian doctrine was the fact that it so utterly outstripped the scientific conceptions of that period, as it still does today. I mean, boom, that nails it, right? I mean, that's the, we're still seeing that today. Um, so just to summarize once again, Bouchamp, because, you know, Dr. Lano does an amazing job of getting us up to speed where we are now, thanks to uh, those great minds that followed him. And, um, but I want to just summarize again, once he, what he was able to do in the 18, mid 1800s, that it was so revolutionary. And he used, while he didn't have all the technology, he was able to use, um, science in the sense of, uh, chemistry and biology to prove these things. First, he demonstrated that the atmosphere is filled with minute living organisms capable of causing fermentation in any suitable medium and that the chemical change in the medium is affected by a ferment engendered by them which ferment may well be compared to the gastric juice of the stomach. He invented that. He came up with it 10 years before Pasteur. Fact. Secondly, he found in ordinary chalk and afterwards in limestone, minute organisms capable of producing fermented, fermentative changes. 
and showed these to bear relation to the infinitesimal granulations he had observed in the cells and tissues of plants and animals. He proved these granulations, which he named microzymas, which Dr. Lando just explained um, the evolution of those, to have independent individuality in life and claim that they are the antecedents of cells, the genesis of bodily forms, the real anatomical incorruptible elements that are here forever. Thirdly, he set forth that the organisms in the air, the so-called atmospheric germs, are simply either microzymas or their evolutionary forms set free by disruption from their former vegetable or animal habitat, and that the little bodies in the limestone and chalk are the survivors of the living forms of past ages. They're not thus the idea that they're specific evil germs causing disease. Fourthly, he claimed that at this present time, microzymas constantly develop into the low type of living organisms that go by the name of bacteria. So, and as Dr. Lando just showed, we have a way better understanding of how that works, but he was the fundamental pioneer that discovered this. And as the main point of today was to kind of go into the history of this and show how, while at the same time where we had this amazing mind discovering how the body really works, we had this imposter who was uh, full of rancor and full of um, hubris and an amazing marketer who gets all the claim now of being the founder of modern um, biological medicine. And it just shows how fraught and perilous our, <laughs> our current situation of our, of our understanding of our own selves and science is. And it also counters the notion that we are in some sort of like great apex of understanding of science and a great apex of you know, we're back and we'll get into this more probably in the second one and how this has led to the whole perilous vaccination program and how it's all based on really bad science. Um, and we just have great analytics and statistics that prove this that go all the way back to the early 1800s. Um, but with, with Bouchamp at the very early stage of his research is he demonstrated with professor Esther that air need have nothing to do with the appearance of bacteria in the substance of tissues. Further, these investigators established the independent vitality of the microzymas of certain tissues, certain glands, and so forth by showing that these minute granules act like organized ferments and then they can develop into bacteria, passing through certain intermediary stages, which they described, which Dr. Lando just showed the updated version. These intermediate stages have been regarded by many authorities as different species. So he was on it, man, late 1800s. Um, and he showed that these microzymas can live forever and that they change into bacteria. And um, it's all within us. And it's empowering because it shows that, you know, with the terrain model that um, we are not these just like um, these victims of outside agents and that we have a very dynamic internal milieu that is designed to heal us. And this, these symptoms, which now get related to disease, are not um, the symptoms of disease, they're the symptoms of repair. Um, so uh, yeah, it's, uh, it's really interesting that um, the history shows this and that nobody's taught about Bichamp in school, of course, or these other great minds that Dr. Lando was just talking about. Um, so the, the germs outside of us are also inside of us. I mean, that's what he discovers, that those very same things in the air that we're supposed to be so scared of and that we need to be defending ourselves with are actually inside us too, and they're constantly changing. And they actually, there's a reason why they're inside. Otherwise, 
if they were inside us and there wasn't a reason, then, I mean, it, it's, it's a, there's a paradox with Pasteur and the germ theory model because they say that, I guess, we're not sick because everything inside us is essentially sterile and it's the outside stuff that makes us sick. But in that case, then, um, if, you know, by showing that there is stuff inside us, then we would always be sick, right? Isn't that true, Dr. Lando? I mean, so um, there's a paradox there that um, they're unable to uh, get around. Yeah, and, and if you just, again, go back and study nature, just sit outside for a while and you see nature's processes, and uh, I, I always say that the most fundamental scientific premise or axiom should be as above, so below. So when you see how mechanisms work outside that you can readily observe and understand that nature has one way of doing things, uh, large and small, but the process is always the same, then you'd know exactly what's going on inside of us as well. And, uh, you know, it's just like if you go outside and kill all the pollinators or, or all the recyclers, the flies and and, and uh, or uh, fungal organisms, uh, you know, you're, you're going to have uh, great disasters. In fact, we're actually witnessing that happening in the outer ecosystem today as we speak uh, with the just destruction of our habitat. And it's because we've interrupted all these uh, cycles. And the same thing's happening internally with our bodies. And then we wonder why we get sick. And this goes very, very deep, uh, and, and it's neat to start with Bouchamp because, uh, like when I was in naturopathic college, uh, he was like 101 uh, historical reference that you had to know about day one because, uh, you know, all the more advanced medicines and processes that you learn later uh, were built on the foundation of understanding environmental medicine. Uh, but then when you trace the people that came after him, uh, some that I already mentioned, where now all of a sudden we can see these things. And, and, and then uh, more therapies have been developed as far as not only understanding what they are, but how to work with them and how to clean up the ecosystem, the ecology of the body. And uh, for people like myself that see, you know, hundreds and hundreds of people over many years, thousands actually, uh, and, and you see blood in a certain state with some of these things I describe, and then you work with them, and then you look at the blood later, and the blood, blood uh, slope it sure cleans up and starts looking better, and the pathogenic forms of these cycles are not prevalent anymore. And then at the same time, you notice that the patient is actually regaining their health, even though they might have been um, diagnosed with a so-called terminal disease. And you see that hundreds of times, you know, after a while you say, geez, maybe there's something to this. So this is not a theory. Um, there are things that you can observe, document, and then apply practically in the clinic and get predictable results. And the, the next fun, I'll just, uh, fun thing is I'll give a little teaser, is beyond just looking things at the microscopic level, which is phenomenal, you realize that these uh, proteids uh, that we call them, what Gaston Nason's later called somatids, are actually very intelligent beings. 
And uh, I won't go into it now, but you see them doing remarkable things under the microscope that really uh, would surprise most. And, and, and it's just amazing what you see. And you understand that uh, these um, organisms are not confined by time and space as far as communication. Um, and, and we can go further into these sorts of com, uh, concepts in the future. For instance, you can take blood out of the body, put it up on a screen, a monitor, so you're seeing the living blood of this person, and then you can do hands-on things to the person on the table in the same room, and you can actually watch changes happen on the blood slide slide in in real time that correspond what you're doing to the body so there is a real intelligent communication when you take these out of the body and they're still in the milieu of the person's blood cells uh, there's no such thing as separation as far as they're concerned and then when you go into more advanced concepts uh, things that like dr homer uh, put forth another person we'll talk about a lot in the future he understood now the connection with the psyche that actually triggers mechanisms in tissues that um, will also trigger the certain microorganisms and also proved that if you have certain tissues involved in a symptom, there's only three germ level tissues in the body that unfold embryologically and create our whole body. Well, depending on what germ level it is, then we can tell you exactly what kind of psychogenic changes these organisms of proteins will make, whether it's bacteria, fungus, or otherwise, because each germ layer requires a different psychogenic change and a different microorganism phase in order to deal with it. So now we have another bit, uh, piece of the puzzle where we can actually tell you, uh, you know, how these things are going to play out in advance before we can even see them under a microscope. And then, of course, the ultimate level uh, that Dr. Homer went to is to understand the connection between the psyche, the consciousness of that person that triggered the biological response and therefore the, bi uh, the microbiological response. And now when you get into waveform physics, we can explain exactly how that happened in the first place. So we filled in all the gaps. That's a, a lot of stuff to mold over. But if you take uh, little baby steps and understand all these great minds that have gone before, starting with Bouchamp, and getting to what we understand present day, we could be in an absolute renaissance of medicine and concepts of disease, along with all the barbaric practices, medical practices that people are exposed to today, would disappear overnight, literally overnight. But as uh, Harmer finally proved, and what you can prove with waveform physics, is it's a matter of our consciousness, and nothing's going to change until we change our mind. Yep, and that's what we're trying to do here is just do our little part. And, um, and with this exercise, uh, every Thursday we do, you know, hopefully get this information out to more people so they can start to expand their horizons. And in doing so, we're also expanding ours. So it's, um, it's a fun thing to do because uh, spreading this information is helping our health uh, just in the act of doing it. So, um it's just, uh, it's been a, it's a fun ride so far. 
Um, and I'm really enjoying going back into history and starting towards the beginning of really, I would call him like Bichamp, maybe the father of cytology too, you know? Um, but uh, we'll kind of su summarize where we've gotten today. And then in two weeks, we're going to follow up with phase two and we're going to dive more into statistics related. Well, now that we've got the foundation that one Pasteur was a fraud and a liar and so that everything kind of coming from him is faulty science. And then we're going to go into more of the statistics and charts showing a lot of stuff um, that is counterintuitive to what the mainstream narrative is. Then we're going to get into more of the newer concepts that Dr. Lando was um, talking about right now and dive into then to how this can relate to our daily life and how it relates to alpha Vedic and how it relates to um, where we want to see the world go, where Bear was just, Dr. Lando was just kind of alluding to. And I really would love to see that renaissance and I would love to see us developing systems and schools where this is being taught and using blockchain to solidify it so it cannot be erased from history like they always do. Um, so to summarize a little bit on just finalizing the contrast between Bichamp and Pasteur, let me just read from the book here. A marked contrast between Bichamp and Pasteur lay in the fact that Bichamp demanded that his views formed a logical sequence, you know, a scientist. While the latter, Pasteur, was content to put forward views that were seemingly contradictory to one another. For instance, according to Pasteur, the body is nothing more than an inert mass, a mere chemical complex, which while in a state of health, he maintained to be immune against the invasion of foreign organisms. He seems never to have realized that this belief contradicts the germ theory of disease originally put forth by Kircher and Raspail, which he and Devane had been so quick in adopting. How can foreign organisms originate disease in a body when, according to Pasteur, they cannot find entry into the self-same body until after disease has set in? Hence the paradox. Anyone with a sense of humor would have noticed an amusing discrepancy in such a contention, but though Pasteur's admirers have acclaimed him as a wit, <laughs> a sense of the ludicrous is seldom a strong point with anyone who takes himself as seriously as Pasteur did or as seriously as his followers take their admiration of him. So there you go. Um, and uh, yeah, it's, um, it's intense, man, when you get into this stuff. I mean, and then we, like I mentioned before, and we'll get more into this on the next talk, but we'll get into some numbers and then we'll relate it to today and everything that's going on. And in two weeks time, I think a lot more will have happened too. just currently. There's a lot of stuff going on in the world that's still using these, these notions of germ theory and pasture that are starting to infringe on personal rights. I mean, this has been happening for, for a long time, even before pasture. Um, but it's getting really bad right now and it's affecting, it's going to affecting already millions and it will affect more and more. And we have a worldwide kind of science, um, medical, like you were saying, we're, we need, it's time to draw the line in the sand bear. We're coming to a mass, um, you know, a problem here that's going to go one of two ways. And so hopefully we can go the right way. And we can use information like this to start to educate the masses more and others who awaken, develop foundations and nonprofits and, uh, you know, communities where we can start to reverse 
all of the damage that's been caused by this faulty science. Um, so I'll kind of leave it at that, I guess, to end today. We've already gone, we're almost we've two hours into this. And like you said, we could go about 40 hours into this. Um, but, you know, it's, it's, the conditioning is crazy. Like, you know, and that's not to say too, one thing I'll say is with germ theory, the idea is that, you know, everything outside is what makes us sick, not internally. And that we're not saying necessarily that you don't want to wash your hands after, you know, dealing with a rotting corpse or something, or that you can just go about not worrying about putrefication and stuff like that. Because as even Bichamp says, that can affect us because those microzymas can have inert effects on the microzymas inside us. What we're saying is it's much more complex than taking um, what they consider uh, a germ that causes disease and injecting it into us to create immunology, create an immune reaction. Um, that is very much um, Frankenstein type science. Um, and hopefully we've educated you a little about, about that today, uh, just with the historic proofs that Pasteur was a complete fraud and not a real scientist. Um, and hopefully I was able to lay out some of those specifics here. And just really, I recommend this book. You can get, I just got it on Amazon. It's, it's kind of intense reading, but, um, it, uh, it lays it all out there plain as day. Um, any parting words for the crowd today, Bear? No, I think we did it. Thanks for listening, everyone. Awesome. Thanks again, guys. If you enjoyed this talk, um, we, uh, we have a uh, website, alphavedic.com, you can go to, and we uh, have all our links there. Uh, you can join us on Telegram which uh, is our favorite little online community. It's an app you can get it on your phone or your computer, and it's a great way to join us on fun little uh, discussions and topics, sharing links, videos, um, and information. It's a really an open format. It's a really fun a little community, and we, we're trying to grow it and so that we can help spread the word and, and develop online communities that way. So Telegram is t.me forward slash alphavedic. We are a course on Facebook, forward slash, or at Alpha Vedic, Instagram, Alpha Vedic, Twitter, Alpha Vedic. Um, you can find us on all those platforms. If you enjoy this talk also, and you, you're watching on uh, YouTube, please subscribe to our YouTube channel. We do replays of these um, every Thursday at 5 o'clock p.m. on our YouTube channel. Please hit the little bell to be notified when those um, go live. Also, if you're watching live right now on DLive, we appreciate you. This is our preferred platform. Um, the more people we can um, get on the live chat, the more inter interaction we can have, the more uh, live community development. It's really important to us to come on here and ask questions. Um, we're still building it. It's a very new platform, and, and also we haven't been doing this podcast too long, so we're still building the audience. We're going to have some amazing guests coming forward to be on this platform too. So you want to jump on here. It's DLive, so D-L-I-V-E dot TV forward slash Alpha Vedic. And you can uh, jump on here and you can actually earn crypto uh, called Lino Points for jumping on here. And once we develop a, a larger cache 
of those points, we will reward um, those in the chat with crypto. So it's a really cool way um, to uh, get involved and, um, and also uh, a really fun a way to interact with us. So um, that being said, thanks for uh, joining us today. Uh, and um, we look forward to our guest next week. Bear, who's our guest next week again? <laughs> Sherry Edwards. Sherry Edwards. Another one, of my, uh, another one of my old teachers, uh, but only this time in sound therapy. And uh, we were with her at her beginning, so in the early 90s or some such thing, uh, when she was pioneering her work, which is now uh, globally recognized. And uh, she's pretty renowned for what she's accomplished. Yeah, that's going to be a good one, going into sound therapies. And also, she's made quite a name for herself of late with her uh, sound uh, voice analyzation. Um, but we're going to really go into the science and uh, medical practice of the sound therapies and stuff, which will be really fun. And in the next week, we're going to dive back into this topic and we're going to take it to the more modern times as well as we're going to look into some analytics and stuff and showing charts, disproving a lot of the narrative um, about germ theory. And we'll go into some fun stuff just about, you know, how you can relate this to your daily life and um, with the notions of disease and stuff. So um, I guess the great takeaway is, there's no fear. Like I feel like a lot of times um, when we start to get a sniffle or we see a symptom, we, we immediately go to a fear-based reaction and it's like grab, grab the whatever pharmaceutical we're supposed to use to counter it. And that's all past year. That's all um, that indoctrination of that system. And um, on, the, on that next time we get into this on part two, we'll go into kind of the 20th century and how um, certain actors developed these concepts into a very, um, you know, into what we know as big pharma now. And we'll relate that to the petrochemical companies and the Rockefellers and all that fun stuff. So another great history lesson there. So uh, thanks again, guys, for joining us today and um, have a wonderful day. And once again, we're, we're on iTunes as well. So if you um, like to listen to this as a podcast, you can find us on iTunes on Apple Podcasts. Thank you. Have a good day. Bye-bye.